Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Holy surprise, extra dose of dangerous history, Batman. I know something like that is probably what you were thinking. And yes, here it is, another dose of dangerous history. What happened was, while I was driving back from my long, long trek up to Porkvest in New Hampshire, I managed to do a little bit of... Remote Guerrilla Podcasting from the Silver Bullet as I made my way back down the Eastern United States. And I recorded this episode I'm about to share with you, and I also recorded earlier in the drive another episode that is going to be a Patreon bonus episode in the near future as well. Now, unfortunately, both of these episodes, I didn't get quite as good of audio as I normally do, even from the Silver Bullet. I think either I had the mic turned up a little too hot and or I had the mouthpiece of the headset mic a little bit too close in, one or the other, or both. So not the greatest audio in the world, I apologize for that, but certainly not not the worst and better than some of my early episodes. And I think the content is good enough that I'm happy to share it with you. So this episode, I wasn't even planning on, on doing an additional episode. I had done the Patreon bonus episode earlier in the drive, and then it put away my mobile Silver Bullet podcasting setup, and then in like the last hour or two of my drive, all of a sudden I just had this like random bolt of inspiration and I grabbed my mobile podcasting gear out of the kit and started just going at it with very little prep time other than kind of thinking about things for a couple of minutes. So this is very much an unscripted Silver Bullet podcast. And before I, I launch into it, I just want to say some things coming up as far as the Dangerous History podcast. One is I'm going to be doing a three-part series in the near future, two episodes of which will be regular Dangerous History podcast episodes, and the third of which will be for Patreon supporters only. So if you want in on that one when it comes out, then you better go over to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show for at least a dollar per episode. And what the series is going to be is going to be a compilation of some key concepts and theories that have really done a lot to help clear up my understanding of the world in terms of history and in terms of just the world in general, both in my own personal life and looking around at the wider world around me. And I've not yet finalized the list, so I don't know if it's going to be, you know, top 15, top 20, top 17 and a half, whatever it's going to be, but I'm going to break it up into roughly three equal parts. And if it's an oddball, you know, prime number or whatever, it might not be three equal parts, but roughly three equal parts. And I'm going to do one batch as a Dangerous History Podcast episode, then I'm going to do a second batch as a Dangerous History Podcast episode, and then I'm going to do the third batch as a bonus episode for Patreon supporters only. Haven't had many new signups over at patreon.com slash profcj. Part of it's my fault. I haven't put up um, bonus episodes as as often lately as I've intended to. 
lots of things going on in all realms of my life getting in the way of that. So anyway, I think that's going to be a cool, interesting series. Later this summer, also going to be doing some stuff regarding kind of entrepreneurship history in the United States, because I think that's an interesting and often underappreciated topic these days. And as the summer rolls along, um, I have other things I'm working on as well. Um, some interviews I'm trying to line up, some other either standalone or maybe one or two part, one or two, well, if it's one, it's not a series, maybe two part, roughly a little mini, mini series. And I'm going to be doing reading also geared towards at some point doing the not so civil war series, which I'm anticipating the earliest I'd be able to get rolling on that would be the fall. And I can't even promise that because the amount of research and work I'm going to put into it is going to be tremendous. So we'll see, but that is in the works. And in the meantime, between now and then, look for a bunch of other stuff to be coming down the line. So without further ado, here we go. Let us join me, halfway or more delirious, in the last hour or two of about a 10-hour driving day. By the way, the day before was, I don't know, 12, 13 hours. So yeah, we're we're talking someone who's, you know... Not in that different of a state of mind from someone who spent too long in an isolation chamber, okay? So anyway, um, that said, I, I think I've got some interesting insights into understanding a particular aspect of the history of the power elite. So the, the topic, the concept that I want to talk about as I'm doing the last eh, hour, hour and a half of my, my drive back from Porkfest, and I'm, I'm now in South Georgia, is one of, it's just been percolating in my brain as I've been driving. And, and what happened was I kind of put together a few different seemingly unrelated concepts to come up with a way of looking at a phenomenon. And I think that's where my real strength lies is in synthesis, for lack of a better term, in being able to combine multiple points of view on a topic or multiple books on a topic or even separate topics or fields of knowledge and find ways of putting them together, hopefully in ways that provide new insights and that help you all to see things in a different light than you did before. And in this case, I'm going to be combining, of all things, a permaculture concept and the concept of power elite studies. Now, I'm actually going to do an episode on power elite studies as like a concept because I think it's something that deserves more respect in conventional academia than it gets. Now, there are very clear, obvious reasons why conventional academia doesn't usually do much coverage of the power elite and its history and its sociology and so on. I mean, there are things out there that have come out of conventional academia that are very good, but it's not common amongst conventional academic books to find stuff that's really digging into the power elite, either empirically or conceptually. And it's pretty 
easy to figure out why that would be when you look at who funds the universities, the think tanks, who controls the major publishers of quote-unquote respectable books and what have you. It's exactly the sorts of people who are, one way or another, either themselves the power elite or are connected to the power elite, benefit from them in some way, etc. And when I use the term power elite, I don't mean it in the sense of, you know, a bunch of blood-drinking, Illuminati, devil-worshipping, eyes-wide-shut cult people or something like that, although I think there's some element of that that is based on real things. But when I'm talking about the power elite, I'm speaking about it kind of building on some of the concepts laid down by C. Wright Mills way back in the 1950s. And like I said, I am going to eventually do another episode in which I'm going to do sort of just like an intro to the power elite as a concept and some ways of looking at them and maybe talk a little bit about some examples of books that I would consider good works of power elite studies, because there's different ways to approach it. But what I wanted to talk with you about right now, this idea that just sort of came together in my head on my huge long day of driving, is I came up with a way to describe a certain type of person that one sees when one is looking at the history of the power elite and how it operates. And I'm going to be speaking about it in the context of American history, but I'm absolutely certain that if you looked at the cons, if you look at it in the concept, uh, sorry, if you look at, looked at the concept in the context of other governments' histories and other, other countries' histories, you'd be able to spot something analogous going on as well. And it's what I'm going to call edge men. Okay? Edge men have the power elite. Now, what I mean by edge here is edge in the way that permaculture or permaculturists use the term edge, okay? Now, permaculture is a a design science. It's mostly applied to food production, making micro farms and, and gardens and things like this. And I'm not an expert on it, and I'm not going to pretend to be. Google it if you want more of just the basic introduction of what it is. But it's a very holistic way of designing systems of productivity. It's originally all geared towards towards agriculture, food production, etc. But it, the concepts of it are potentially applicable to many areas of life. And so people have used its principles and concepts to analyze and build businesses, to analyze and build communities and all sorts of other things. And there's a concept in in my own very limited amateur understanding of permaculture. And I, I live on a small lot. I do a little bit of container gardening in the backyard, but that's about the extent of my, my food production at the moment. But I'm familiar enough with the concept that I understand a few of its, you know, key words and phrases and, and jargon and concepts and so on. And one that I understand is is the phenomenon of the edge. Permaculturists realize that in nature, edges are often the most productive areas you can find. By edge, it's when something meets something else. So where you have a forest and then you have an open, open meadow, the edge, where the two meet, is usually enormously productive. And the idea of permaculture in terms of the edge is that 
you understand the potential productivity of edges and make the most of them in your projects. And this idea of an edge and an edge being a special productive place is something that when I heard about it in the way that the, the permaculturists talk about an edge, it immediately resonated with me and I was like, aha, that, that's a brilliant insight. And one of the first things that I thought about was fishing. I don't fish as much as I used to, but growing up, I used to fish all the time. And someone who is serious about fishing, by which I mean someone who's not content to just like throw out a bait in one spot from the shore and sit there all day and rely just on luck of a fish happening to come by and grab your bait, people who take fishing a little more seriously than that and who are interested in catching stuff on a more regular basis understand that the most important part of fishing usually is being where the fish are. And if you're that kind of a fisher person and you know what you're doing and you've got some experience, you know how important an edge is. So, for example, one of the most common edges in fishing that is very productive would be a drop-off where the water goes pretty dramatically from shallow to deep. That is a place that in most rivers, lakes, and, and areas of, of the ocean will attract lots of life, including probably fish that you want to catch. And fishermen who fish on lakes know that on any given lake, the vast majority of the lake holds very few fish. And the vast majority of fish in a lake are congregated usually just in a few areas. Now, they might do it differently. Some might go with Pareto's Law, which, by the way, I'm going to talk about in my Key Concepts and Theories miniseries down the road. Pareto's Law is the 80-20 rule, which would say that 20% of the lake holds 80% of the fish, and vice versa. The other 20% of the fish are scattered over 80% of the lake. And so one of the most important things you can do if you want to catch fish consistently is figure out, based on that lake and its geography and the season and what what bait is is available in nature and blah, 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 all these different factors, figure out which 20% of the lake is going to be holding the 80% of the fish, and that's where you fish. You don't go fishing random spots where nothing's going on. So anyway, just as someone who's fairly experienced at fishing, I immediately grasp this idea of the edge. Of course, edges are more productive. If you're out fishing offshore in deep water, many of you might know this, not only are drop-offs productive, but also places where there are dramatically different changes in water temperature. In other words, if you've got a generally cool water temperature and then there's this warm current over here, the edge right where the two, where the two meet, the, the spot that's like right on the cusp of, of the cooler water versus the warmer water, that probably is going to have disproportionately more, more stuff going on, more fish and so on. So edges tend to be very productive places, and that includes not just physical edges, but also intangible edges. People can often make themselves economically very valuable by, by making themselves an edge person. Sometimes an edge person in business would be considered some sort of a middleman or a fixer or somebody like that. And when you're just talking about voluntary interactions and exchange and kind of regular old business and economic activity, 
there's nothing in in and of itself wrong with being an edge man. In fact, it can often lead to a very successful career and a lot of prosperity. If you're the guy who can kind of bring together two different spheres, right? If you've got apples growing in Minnesota and oranges growing in Florida, if you can be the businessman who figures out how to transport some of the apples to Florida and some of the oranges to Minnesota, and you can be the import-export transportation guy doing that, then you can make a good living. You solve that logistical problem, you bring oranges from where they're abundant and therefore not quite as valued to where they're less abundant and therefore more valued, and vice versa with the apples, you can profit, and you're performing an important service. But when you add in institutions that that aren't about voluntary, peaceful interaction and so on, then the people who operate on the edges between different realms of power and, and force and so on, while they can also have great careers and be very, very, uh, make, make huge amounts of money and, and get wealth and prestige and influence and respect and so on. From the perspective of someone who shares even most of the kinds of ethics that I have, these people are not admirable. They're, they're in fact usually pretty sinister. So in the context of looking at the power elite, the edges are between the, the different parts of the power elite. So, the government would be obviously one major part of the power elite, especially when you get up into the high levels of power. Large corporations would be another part of the of the power elite. Another one would be the military. Another one would be large-scale organized crime. And within all those categories, and we could probably come up with some, with some others as well, but that's good enough to get the concept across and get us started. Within each of those, there are things that break it down even further. So, for example, within organized crime, if you're the guy who can sort of mediate between two different organized crime institutions, assuming you can do it successfully without them both turning on you and, and thinking you're screwing both of them, assuming you can do it successfully, if you can be the guy who like facilitates the deals between, I don't know, the Italian mob and the Russian mob, just to make up a random example, that could lead to you being a very wealthy guy and getting a lot of benefit out of performing that edge function. Similar thing if you're looking at within the government, someone who has kind of a foot in one part of the government and a foot in the other can oftentimes leverage that edge into more power wealth or whatever it is they want. And then you get even more power by leveraging the edges between the major categories of sort of power elite institutions and organizations. So if, for example, you have one foot in the corporate oligarchy and another foot in academia... Academia would be another one of these kind of categories of power elite. And it fu- it functions as a mouthpiece of other parts of the power elite from time to time, usually of government and the corporatocracy, or both. So if you are able to kind of straddle different parts of the organizations and institutions of the power elite, you often as an individual can leverage that for 
wealth, prestige, money, whatever else it is you want. Tragically, um, apparently young boys, in the case of some of these people at least. Or maybe something a little more conventional, hookers and blow, whatever it is. But these these guys, and so far in history, they've mostly been men, although now that there are more women participating in, in the higher levels of some of these institutions, maybe more and more of these edge men will actually, in fact, be edge women. But whatever, they've mostly been men up to this point anyway. These edge men oftentimes have, have uh, jobs that are hard to describe, or if they do have a formal job, like a formal title or position, they're doing things and exercising influence far beyond that. I'm going to give you a few examples of people from history that I would identify as edgemen. You can think of them as like go-betweens of different spheres of the power elite. Usually, edgemen themselves are not at the highest levels of the power elite. Usually they are one or several steps lower on the pyramid. But they're often people who are able to kind of punch above their weight in terms of their actual wealth and their actual family pedigree because they perform these important functions for the various parts of the power elite. So let me just give you one example from very early in American history of, of someone I would consider an edge man. Alexander Hamilton. He was on the edge between the wealthy oligarchs of the early American Republic and the actual political class. So one of the most important things that he bridged was the edge between Robert Morris and people like him and George Washington and people like him. And Hamilton, this unknown illegitimate child of a Caribbean trader, was able to become very wealthy and, and successful and ingratiate himself into high society because he was able to leverage that edge. Now, if you're somebody that doesn't have the same ethics and principles as somebody like me, you can actually take some of this information and maybe make make a name and a career and some wealth for yourself if you really understand how these things work. If you're more of like a, a cold-blooded Machiavellian type, this information might be very useful. Or you could even just figure out where the edges are where you work. If you work in some sort of big uh, company or institution or whatever, figure out where the edges are, and those are places where you can probably leverage yourself into more money and prestige and higher position and so on. Just a few other guys that more or less fit this concept of an edge man that came to mind while I was driving. Another one would be George W. Perkins. And I don't recall if I've mentioned him on previous episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast or not. But George W. Perkins is a guy who worked the edge between the kind of New York Wall Street banksters and high-level politicians, particularly progressive politicians, around the turn of the century. George W. Perkins was literally a partner of J.P. Morgan's. He was, if I remember right, vice president of the New York Life Insurance Company, which was a very important part of the Morgan Empire in the mid, in the um, early 20th century. He was crucial in getting Teddy Roosevelt into the vice presidency, and then eventually, thanks to McKinley getting shot, um, you know, indirectly helping Teddy Roosevelt then become president. 
And if you look at what he did while Teddy Roosevelt was president, he seems to have functioned as a go-between between J.P. Morgan and, and Associated People and Teddy Roosevelt. And that made him important and influential and so on. Just a few years later, we have another one of these type of guys helping out a, a different president, but also a progressive. And that's, of course, Colonel Edward Mandel House, who I've talked a little bit about in a DHP Villains episode on him a while back. And same sort of deal. Colonel House performed an analogous function for Woodrow Wilson, as George W. Perkins did with Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, by the way, George W. Perkins was also the key individual in helping to set up and fund and so on the progressive Bull Moose Party in 1912 to run Teddy Roosevelt and thereby block Taft from winning re-election. Anyway, um, Edward Mandel House was an edge man who kind of simultaneously bridged three different edges together, and in his case it would be the American oligarchy, the British oligarchy, which were closely connected and related, but not not exactly the same, and then American uh, politicians, first at the state level in Texas, and then increasingly in the National Democratic Party, culminating in him, Edward Mandel House, being one of the key people behind getting an unknown half-term governor of New Jersey named Woodrow Wilson into the White House. And for much of Wilson's first term, House was performing an edge man function between Wilson and the American financial elite, and also simultaneously between Wilson and a lot of the rest of the National Democratic Party politicians, because Wilson, though he had been a professor of political science for many years, had almost no real-world political experience when he became president. He had been governor of New Jersey for, I believe, two years. And so, for example, Edward Mandel House basically chose Wilson's cabinet, or almost all of it. So, obviously, House was a guy who leveraged a lot of power. He already had wealth. These people are not always motivated by wealth, because they might already be quite wealthy. But maybe power, maybe influence, maybe prestige, maybe some other particular causes they want to advance, whatever. They're always looking to leverage the edge for something. A couple of more recent edge men that probably most or all of you are pretty familiar with, and these are guys who are like almost, you know, Republican and Democrat versions of each other. They're so similar in so many ways. Henry Kissinger and Big New Brzezinski. And when you look at the functions that Kissinger performed in the Nixon and Ford administrations, and then you look at the functions that Brzezinski performed during the Carter administration, you find that they're like echoes of each other. They're so similar. Kissinger is just the Republican Brzezinski, and Brzezinski is just the Democrat Kissinger. And these guys sort of perform a function on the edge of the big corporate interests that fund like think tanks and academic institutions and so on, and then the political class, and also, for lack of a better term, I'll use it, the globalist community, right? The, the, the types of people that are the regulars at Bilderberg and all that kind of stuff. So somebody like Kissinger or somebody like Brzezinski, they're not at the top of the pyramid of power, but they're kind of a few steps down and they, they have power and prestige and so on because they're able to leverage these different edges. Another guy who seems to have done this to some degree is George de Morenschild. And I did a Dangerous History podcast, P1, 
Patreon supporters only bonus episode on George Demore and Schild a while back. And he's another one of these guys that you look at him and his connections and who he who he socialized with and so on. And he's this interesting bridge between different elements of of American society, Texas society, the Texas oil people, the so-called white Russian exile community in America, various uh, intelligence elements, and so on and so on. I mean, here's a guy who simultaneously rubbed elbows with the Texas ultra-right-wing elite and also was friends with Leah Harvey Oswald. So, I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but I think George DeMorenschild is one of these guys who is, in his own way, at a different level. He's obviously not the same sort of guy as Kissinger or Edward Mandel House, but in a, in a different way, in a particular venue, on another level, he's really an edge man. Another guy who's not that high up the ladder, but still has an impressive uh, amount of power elite connections, given his relatively humble background, is a guy named Barry Seal, who had connections to organized crime, the CIA, some members of the American political elite, and so on, was a key figure in a lot of things revolving around the Iran-Contra affair and the, the smuggling in of drugs into the United States in the 80s to fund a lot of that stuff. Now, in his case, he eventually got whacked, and there's different theories over what really was the cause of it, but I won't get into that. I'll just point him out as another very different example of an edge man, of a man who, for a while at least, was able to benefit from working one of these edges. In his case, it was one of the more, one of the more seedier, what people would consider more conventionally shady edges, the edge between organized private sector crime and the public sector, sector criminals known as the government. By the way, you can make an argument that the Dulles brothers were a couple of very successful edge men, and I talked a bit about them in my Uncle Sam versus Democracy two-part series about how the CIA overthrew the governments of Iran and Guatemala, both democratically elected governments, by the way, in the 1950s, and the key role played by the Dulles brothers in doing that. And the Dulles brothers were also these sorts of edge man characters. They were of the power elite. They were from a fairly blue blood family and Ivy League educated and all that, but they're not at the tippy top. They're not all the way up there with Averill Harriman and the Rockefeller family and so on. But they're pretty high up there, and they were able to bridge the edges of American intelligence and covert ops, corporate America, and the um, political elite, the political class. And possibly, in some cases, also organized crime to some degree, at least indirectly. And so the Dulles brothers got their success from that. Really, in a way, you could make an argument that the Bushes as a family and as a political dynasty, are in a way kind of edge men as well. When you look at how they kind of bridge the gap between the old-timey Northeastern Rockefeller Republicans and the emerging Sunbelt Cowboy Republicans um, from the 1960s on into relatively recently. And this is how this rather uninspiring family, when it comes to like rhetoric and and traditional political skills has nonetheless elected two presidents and, you know, multiple governors and senators and whatever. They perform this edge function. They link various spheres of the American power elite. Anyway, I think that 
if you and I sat and thought about it forever, we could probably come up with page after page of examples of edge men in American history, let alone in world history. I mean, if you were to look at, say, for example, the history of the British Empire, I would argue that Cecil Rhodes, for example, would be an edge man there. And he certainly leveraged his situation to his own advantage, both in terms of money and, and prestige and power and so on, and in trying to achieve his goals of building up the British Empire and so on. Getting back to the United States and, and the American power elite, somebody like Vernon Jordan, if you can remember him from back in the Clinton administration. I think Vernon Jordan, and, and to be honest, I've not researched him as much as some of these other people I've mentioned, but my understanding is that basically what he did was was, was another one of these go-betweens between different realms and spheres of the power elite. Many times, edge men are lawyers, but obviously not always. I mean, the Dulles brothers were both corporate lawyers before going into government. Vernon Jordan was a lawyer. Lawyers often have that skill, especially if they come from kind of a corporate law firm, like the Dulles brothers firm of uh, Sullivan and Cromwell they both worked at. Corporate lawyers in particular, a lot of why corporate law is so lucrative is because they're basically performing edge edge man type functions in the corporate realm. They're mediating between corporations and government, or they're mediating between corporations and other corporations, or they're mediating between corporations in America and foreign governments that, you know, the corporations in America are trying to extract re- resources from. So there's a lot of different angles of this. The the guys who were the CIA guys who had mob connections would be edge men. And I think this is an, an interesting example of where insights of one realm, in this case insights of permaculture, have implications and lessons to teach us in looking at other aspects of life, in this case, power elite studies. I think once you understand this concept, you can start to really see how power operates in a way to almost understand the physics of it. And when you get an instinctive feel for the physics of it, I think you can better and more accurately and more quickly understand what's going on, whether you're looking at the past or looking at the present. Now, the only limitation being when you're looking at what's going on in the power elite right now, you don't have that benefit of hindsight. So I don't think it's a crystal ball for, for really totally accurately understanding the present and, and predicting the future in a one-to-one accurate correlation sort of a way. But I think it gives you kind of like the quick way of figuring out sort of who's who. So I know this isn't an earth-shaking world-changing, paradigm-shifting sort of a concept, but nonetheless, I thought it was an interesting enough insight that I kind of spontaneously just grabbed my portable podcasting stuff out of my kit and went to town. I think it gives a nice sort of handle or category or, or label or whatever you want to call it to these characters in the power elite who are kind of hard to kind of hard to nail down sometimes of exactly exactly why the hell is this guy as influential and powerful and so on as he is i don't quite get it right i mean there's plenty of academics who deal in uh the history of international relations and political science and whatever and yet how come specifically henry kissinger and zbigniew brzezinski have all this influence 
There's plenty of people in the intelligence world, and yet how come some of them make these bigger marks than others, right? I mean, someone who bridges that gap between these different areas. So I don't know if this will be posted before or after, probably after I post my presentation from Porkfest as an episode. But either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for a little little piece of my giant commute down the entire East Coast. And I hope my thoughts on this topic have provided you with a little bit of insight and some value. As always, my most devout hope is that I've not wasted your time. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode. Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org slash donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, Go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.